Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is the super sassy Sa de Simone. Sa is a spiritual guide, meditation teacher, transformational speaker, and best-selling author. He leads a heart-based healing movement rooted in tried-and-true techniques, pioneering a spiritually sassy approach in which joy and authenticity illuminate the spiritual path. Born in Brazil, Sa immigrated to the U.S. at age 16. By his early 20s, he had found great success in the fashion industry, yet was overwhelmed by addiction, depression, and anxiety. In 2012, he walked away from everything and began an intensive search for health and well-being. His search resulted in the realization of essential spiritual truths that Sa presents in his very own unique, supremely engaging, and powerful way. Sa is not just sassy. He's downright lovable, real, and true. Here's my conversation with Sa DeSimone. Saw so your new book is called Spiritually Sassy. What does it mean to be spiritually sassy? Beautiful. Thank you for opening with that. And, and I just wanted to reiterate what's such an honor and a joy to be talking to you and to be in such great company. Thank you so much. Spiritually sassy, I mean, it's there's a few ways of looking at it. I think spiritually sassy as, as a movement, as a home for all of us who didn't feel like we could fit in to the normally white, heteronormative, cisgender uh, wellness or healing spaces. And I didn't really understand the necessity of it because I was doing the thing that I think a lot of people, a lot of queer and brown black folks do, we try to fit in. So we try to subdue our, our volume, subdue our, our extraness, our fullness, our authenticity to fit in. So I found myself in retreats, you know, a 30-day meditation retreat in Kathmandu, Nepal years ago, 250 people and could count on my hands uh, black or brown bodies and, you know, expressed queerly, uh, queer expressed people in the space. And it took me a minute to really realize what, what I was doing, that I was trying to, to mimic and, and model after people who, who for them, spirituality looked 
uh, to be this very quiet, subdued, don't laugh too loud, don't dance, don't you do this, don't you do that. All these, that what we call is this uh, zombie zen or this forced seriousness that we, that I thought was, it was a, it was what was like necessary to progress on a spiritual path. But little did I know what was missing was joy. What was missing was self-expression. What was missing was reclaiming beauty and playfulness and lightheartedness. So spiritually sassy is, is, is homage to all the Mahasiddhas, to all the radical saints that have come before us and continue to, uh, to guide my, my teaching and my style and delivered in a way that's approachable and relatable, especially for those who never felt like they had a home in a spiritual place. Um, so that's a, that's a little short version. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a transition from being in the, in the Himalayas and doing that zombie Zen thing, the forced seriousness really. And that was very helpful for me to like deconstruct my identity. And then it was all about like, you know, getting rid of my, of my destructive tendencies, all of my lies, all of my bullshit, and then developing my heart. And I found the spark of joy at a dance floor in, in Bali. And that's when I knew it was like, oh my God, I think this is the missing link to it. And then I quote Jitsuma Tenzin Palmo in a book. I was, I had a private audience with her while in India and we're talking about the paramitas and, and we, the, the perfections. Uh, I think everybody here knows that the language by the paramitas. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the perfections in different schools of Buddhism, there's 10 others, there's six. And she, we're, we're referring to the one that has six. And she's saying that the seventh paramita should be joy. And I think that's what you're here to do. And I, I, I like, you know, metaphorically speaking, I fell off the chair because I look up to this living saint, this woman who spent 12 years in a cave, um, you know, have been so immersed in her work, followed her around the Himalayas to just get a little taste of her presence and to then hear that from her. And I think what, what's spiritually sassy is really being a joy activist. It's really approaching the highs and the low, uh, knowing the Brahma Viharas, knowing what lives at the base of your being, no matter what your experience and really, um, you know, bringing joy to, to, to anything and everything. So these are kind of some of the ways to to look at what spiritually sassiness means. And it's one other aspect to it. It's like doing good, feeling good while looking amazing. I think it's important. People have to look at you. And, and I, I think a, another big part of it, why I think the movement sort of grew fast was I say this to people and it could be taken out of context, but it, I find that it's, it's my job to seduce people to take care of themselves. So like when you look great and you present yourself in a relatable and fashionable uh, way, it, there's, it's, it's easier to, for people to, to be like, oh, shit, I want to look like that, but I really want to feel like this. I want to have this magnetic, charismatic energy. And what you're seeing in me, it's in you. It's the seed of it. It's just dormant at the base of your being. So I think in a, in a variety of ways uh, and throughout the book, we speak to what spiritually sassiness means. Um, so it's really an invitation for people to take care of themselves uh, and, you know, be of service to the world while feeling good and, and looking great. Mm -hmm. Now, you said a lot right here <laughs> in the beginning. One thing I want yeah. to pick up on is this being a joy activist, yeah. because, you know, I, I notice in my relationships with the people I work with at Sounds True yeah. since the pandemic has started. Yeah. There's been a dearth of joy. There has not been a whole, it's been hard to find joy. That's and when I find it in people, it's like such good medicine. When it's real, when it's genuine, mm -hmm. and they're just bubble, it's like, wow, even in the midst of all of the terrible things that are happening, the divisiveness, 
the injustice. So how do you stay tapped into joy? A variety of ways, but I just want to sort of uh, give a little bit of background what it means to be a joy activist. It doesn't mean that I don't wake up crunchy. It doesn't mean that I don't experience destructive emotions. It doesn't mean that painful memories don't visit me and I don't get hooked or I go into catastrophizing or ruminating. What it means is that I'm aware of their empty and transient nature more often, that I'm doing my best effort to recognize that they're passing, to recognize that I'm the motherfucking sky and I'm as bright as the sun and I'm not just a passing cloud. And that recognition, that awareness and, and the connection to the deep breath has really allowed me to like unhook and drop into the base of my being. And then what arises naturally when you do this enough is, is joy. It's, a, it's a, a high level of contentment where you're just, you relax inside yourself. You can see things for what they are and you're not adding additional layers. When things are bad, our conditioned mind does a great job of making it worse, right? Um, so being a joy activist is, is just, you know, recognizing that we can be part of the solution, that every state of mind matters, that every time we're overly identifying with a state of mind, it, it's impacting the collective. It's making a vow every day to be part of the solution because your words matter, your actions matter. And, you know, we want to create the most uh, positive, wholesome karma we can while we are alive. Um, so being a joy activist, is, it's a continuous choice to recognize how am I impacting the tapestry that we're all connected to? Am I being of support? Am I, you know, healing or am I, you know, um, or am I not? And it, it, it doesn't only happen outside on the streets when people are looking at you. It's who are you when no one's watching? Who are you when the doors are closed? You know, that also, that would then dictate who you are out in the world and, you know, there's a Zen uh, saying, I think it's, it says, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I think being a joy activist is, is, is drawing upon that, is that recognition that like joy is available to us. And then one of my teachers says, um, uh, Tenzin Choki, she says, enlightenment is as close to us as our eyelashes. We just can't see it. But if we're constantly trying to see it, it's in that trying, that intention to see, that intention to touch base, that intention to become one with it that what arises are our best qualities because we're, we're not getting caught up with the bullshit. We're not getting caught up with the polarized mind. Uh, does that make sense? It does. Now, I want our listeners to get to know you and your history a little bit. Okay. What I know is that you started off in the fashion industry and that you were a successful creative director of an international fashion magazine, yeah. and then it all kind of went sour. <laughs> what yeah. went sour and yeah, put you yeah. on this spiritual quest that you went on. That's right. Um, yeah, so I started this fashion magazine when I was 23 without any, um, without any sort of training. It was just like, you know, relying on my creativity. And then when I was um, 27, uh, turning 28, it was, it was November 22nd, 2012. I remember the exact date. I had a falling out with my business partners and they bought me out of the company. So my entire identity, my entire notion of, of, of self-worth was dictated by what I had to show for. I had the apartment, I had this, I had the clothes, I had all this like external stuff. And when I left, it, mind you, throughout this entire time, I was a high performer, a highly performed, I mean, it was performing really well as someone struggling with addiction, depression, and anxiety. And I was doing a great job of showing the world that I'm okay, everything is okay. So when 2012 happened, when I left the fashion industry, I went to Florida, um, got this little beach house in Madeira Beach, and I spent a year there sort of just like rethinking my life and, and trying to like 
figure out what, what to do next. And I started to meditate. It was like a little glimpse, five minutes. I'm like, ooh, this feels nice. What's going on here? And I changed how I ate, started exercising, started changing what I watch, what I listen to. And, and then through that year, um, I started to deepen my, be more curious about mindfulness and meditation and spirituality in general. But every time I would sit down to like go deeper into practice, my mind would drag all the way back to the, the terrible things that have happened to me, the terrible things that I had done to other people. My inability to forgive set me off to the path. It, people ask me, what started your path? It's like, um, I think at the baseline of the anxiety, of the depression, of the addiction was my inability to make peace with my past. And then I, I watched a documentary from Krishna Das and I said, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go visit all these South Indian gurus. I have this whole pilgrimage planned out. And then my dad walks into the house and he says, you should go north. You should go up to the Himalayas. You should study with the Dalai Lama. And I was like, excuse me, what the fuck do you know, honey? He just knew. And I Googled the Dalai Lama. I looked up his photo and it was just that moment of like, this is my dude. I need to go see this. I need to go where he's at. So I, I, I went to uh, Dharamsala and uh, did a 10-day silent retreat. Um, and during that silent retreat, I heard a few words that were just utterly wild. It was, you have basic goodness. I grew up with loving parents. I grew up in a loving home. But the, just that understanding that your mistakes do not define who you are. Your past doesn't define who you are. And we all, every single human being is innately good at the base of their being. It was a very massive moment for me. And the teacher wasn't speaking directly to me, speaking to the whole crowd of people. And then after the, the last three days of the retreat, we meditated on death. And we had these, uh, I, I became physically sick, coughing, fever, body ache because of, because of engaging conceptual meditation, you know, engaging in the visualization of my own death. And during that time, I was like, oh, my God, I have never contemplated my, my mortality to this degree. And that started to really, you know, change the way I wanted to be a global citizen, the way I wanted to relate to myself. Um, and then it all sort of took a hold when I went to Nepal that fall and I did a 30 day meditation retreat. And it was during that retreat that I the the sort of the the initial noise of the mind settled a little bit and all the stuff that was underneath the surface, like, Hey girl, we're here. Let's work through this shit. And it was when I entered the third week of the retreat, the first two weeks I was judging everybody because they were having breakthroughs and I was judging myself because I wasn't crying and screaming and having experiences. Little did I know that third week was going to be my time. And because we're in silence, people are just passing notes. I hope you're okay. I hope everything's okay. You know, that kind of exchange. Um, and then that's when I, I, at the end of the retreat, I, I had an opportunity to meet with the Lama Zopa Rinpoche and he said, you're going to teach. So you might as well start doing the purification work. I said, honey, I mean it for me. I'm selfish. I don't want, it's nothing about anybody else. It's purely for myself. I want to feel well. I want to get out of the hole that I'm in. And then the day after I had this private audience that we had an opportunity to take refuge and, and take the vows. And I said, okay. If I commit to my healing and not to my bullshit, if I commit to my healing, not to my lies for a year, let's see what happens. So I committed for a year and I, instead of bar hopping, I was monastery hopping, ashram hopping, retreat hopping all over. And I just, radical change started to take place inside of me. I started to you know, feel really terribly, but have a way out. And, and that was really 
wild. And slowly, slowly, I started to just accumulate all the notes and all the things that were landing for me and um, and then kept going to retreat, kept studying. And then in this uh, fall of 2016, I came back and, um, and I had the first teaching opportunity at Omega Institute. And that was, uh, I was teaching the volunteers and the staff, but the feedback was really awesome. And I said, okay, this is where my joy lives. And in the book, I speak about purpose being when you find what brings you joy and that joy helps people. So that's when I knew I was like, oh, this is, this is, what I, this is, this is where I need to be going. Uh, so that's a little bit of the of the backstory. Now, Saw, you said something interesting as mm-hmm. you were talking about the time that you were in Florida and mm-hmm. you started to meditate, that yeah. you realized that it was a lack of ability to forgive your past mm-hmm. that was keeping you stuck. How did you work that out? <sighs> Such a good question. And that was that's literally the foundation of my work. Um, I... It, there was a variety of things, right? The, in Buddhist psychology, it explains that there's three kinds of forgiveness towards yourself, towards the people who, who you know, forgiving those who cause you pain and then asking for forgiveness of those that you've caused pain, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And it was a variety of different things. It was in meditation and then writing letters, you know? And then remembering that forgiveness is an independent process, never wanting to, never having, grasping the need of, turning the letter in or reading it to somebody, but just doing the work between me and me and uh, wrote letters over and over and over again. And to the point uh, that was one aspect. Um, and then another aspect, every time the memory surfaced in my mind, depending on the, which, which memory was it, I would say, I forgive you, forgive me, may I be happy, may I be happy. So it was uh, concentrating the mind, you know, to be able to even have access to call back these memories and then apply the antidote. So concentration of mind, you know, foundational to any healing, relearning how to breathe. So we are able to rele- relegate the, uh, regulate the nervous system when we're working with traumatic memories. And then applying the antidote as I'm j- walking, driving, folding laundry, um, washing dishes, constantly having this antidote in the mind. I forgive you, forgive me. I may be happy, may I be happy. And then the writing of the letters, really putting pen to paper and saying, you know, um, forgive me for all those I've caused you pain, intentionally or unintentionally. Going through in very, very detailed and then ending the letters always with the altruistic motivation, with the compassionate motivation that like, I genuinely wish you to be happy and for you to be free of suffering. And working with that until the point that it then becomes genuine. You recognize that you cause pain to others because you're in pain. People cause pain to you because they're in pain. Because if we were so relaxed inside ourselves, we'd never cause pain to other people. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and then I knew that the moment had changed, that something had radically changed was when I would be just doing whatever, living, and the memory surfaced in the mind and it would pass the mind's eye and I wouldn't have a flare up. My entire system would be crunchy and my perception would be closed off. It would be a, a sort of a, a, a relaxed, harmonious passing, you know, without residue, without a psychological residue. And that's when I knew, okay, something is radically changing inside of me. And the most miraculous things that I always have to mention is the moment that I had landed at the next level, I had an email from my business partner. You can't make this shit up. You know what I mean? And then when I started to teach these, the forgiveness, we, at, at all of our retreats, we have a whole day where we do forgiveness practice, right? It's a very hard day for the retreaters um, because, you know, our past is, our inability to make peace with the past is completely dictating our running and ruining our life, right? So in, 
all these retreats, the day that we would do these letters, the next day would always have somebody coming up to me and say, Sa, you're not going to believe what happened. I got a text from my ex. My, I got an email from this one. I got a, the most epic things were miraculously happening in people's lives. Um, so I can't, I can't stress enough the importance of bringing forgiveness to the forefront and, and, and as I call it in the book, putting it on, a, on your spiritual fanny pack and having it there uh, for everything and applying forgiveness to, to every night you go to sleep and you're holding grudges. You know, you may be holding a grudge because your Uber driver is playing loud music or talking a foreign language and just whatever little grasp and little grudge that you're we're overly identifying with it. Apply the antidote of forgiveness. Feel the release and that long exhale that happens when you're able to, to allow it to move and allow yourself to not be overly identified with it. Um, but it's, I have to say it's an active practice and it's a, it's a radical choice to stop the cycle of harm, stopping the cycle of harm. It doesn't take away from the people involved. It doesn't take the responsibility of the people involved in the, in the co-creation of the trauma. But it gives you an opportunity to say, I am done regurgitating my trauma. I am done replaying the past. I am done playing the horror movie in my mind 275,000 fucking times. I am done with that story. It takes you to step up and say, enough is enough. And that's, that will, that's what's going to give you the fuel and the, 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 the push for you to say, I'm going to do this forgiveness practice. I'm going to practice until I am free. You know, every single dance practice that I open or meditation, we always open with a prayer. I'll practice until I'm free and may my freedom light up the way for the freedom of others. Keeping that altruistic motivation in mind will help you to have more energy uh, towards writing a genuine forgiveness letter. And at the beginning, it's going to feel fake as shit. It's going to feel really like, oh, I don't want to do this, but just try. Bring yourself to the edge every single day and you do it. At some point, you're going to be like, oh, okay. Here it is. The, the, the memory is passing by and it, it just passes by. And you're like, hey, girl. Now, you talked about what it was like to be one of a handful of people who uh, wasn't white mm -hmm. sitting on their meditation cushion yeah. during the retreats where you were being trained. And, you know, here you are. You're talking about going to India. Uh, a lot of Indian spirituality. Yeah is not interested in honoring the body, honoring the earth, honoring the feminine. I mean, it's a patriarchal mm -hmm. tradition from guru to student. How do you think the spirituality from India that so many of us feel connected to in our bones mm -hmm. needs to evolve at this time through us so that it's expressed differently. Clearly you have a very sassy, super sassy, <laughs> supremely sassy, <laughs> mega sassy way, but yeah. what are the elements of it, of the evolution that's needed in our time? I think we need better commentators. We need better translators. We need black and brown and queer bodies um, that are saying, you know, F the ways that we have been conditioned to believe things have to be done in, 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 in a certain way. And just you know, carve your way in and have people like you know mentors and teach and support systems like you. Tammy, it sounds true to say here. Let me. I'm going to give you this opportunity to publish this book and help people in this way. But I think we just need. I think a lot of the the problem is that the that the sacred texts have turned into you know misinterpreted uh, literature where it's the privileged few who've had an opportunity to go there have translated in a way that fits their view, if it's their, their, their addiction to their suffering, if it's their 
uh, their comfort level. And we're living in a world where that comfort level no longer works, honey, you know? Um, that's my, my take on it. And I think, um, I think um, you know, it's, this is such a good question. I have to sort of put more thought into it. But I think really, um, if you are a teacher or if you are in these spaces, looking around and, and making the front row of your places uh, black and brown and queer bodies, uh, changing the paradigm um, of, of how black and brown queer bodies are seen in these spaces, putting them on the, on the stage with you, uh, speaking in a panel together with them, hearing their texture of their trauma and, and, and what happens in, in their bodies when they're walking to, into spaces. Um, I think these are uh, very important topics. And I, I thank you for this question. It's, it's sort of, you know, um, activating my mind to, 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 you know, think more and more fully about this. Mm -hmm. Now, you write in Spiritual Sassy about coming out spiritually. Right. And I thought that was interesting. And just for a, a moment, a little bit of a confessional yeah. moment, which is often when I talk to people about my own life story, I say coming out as a lesbian was easy. Coming out spiritually took a whole hell of a lot of courage wow. for me to share what really matters the most to me, which is my relationship with uh, source. Like that's really, but it took a lot of courage for me to talk about it, to own it. And so I'm wondering, cause you're the only other person I've ever really heard talk about this coming out spiritually, what coming out spiritually has meant for you. Yeah, that's so good. And, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, coming out spiritually is, is the recognition that 15 minutes in the morning, sorry, honey, it's not enough. You gotta align every area of your life with intention and attention, intention and attention, and, and, and that will connect you to source, that will connect you to your heart. And coming out of the spiritual closet is spiritualizing every hour of your life. You're waiting in line, instead of you being impatient and, and eating your nails and itching and becoming jittery, so whisper a mantra in your mind. Whatever it is that you're doing, how could you use that opportunity to train your mind, to open your heart, and to open up to the infinite intelligence, to energize your body, Coming out of the spiritual closet is, is, is prioritizing that, what you said, is connection to source and recognize the ultimate goal of, of, of human life is to, is to become free so we can help others to become free, right? And I'm not talking about freedom as in the tall order of enlightenment. I'm talking about just a relaxed inside of yourself kind of way where your thoughts are more positive, where your feelings are more, are more easeful, where your body's energized, your perception is not so limited. Um, I'm speaking about that kind of thing. And coming out of the spiritual closet, um, it was extremely difficult for me to, I think coming out as, as, as gay, it took me a long time to do it. I was 23 when I did it. Um, and it, it took me to like start the magazine and have stuff to show for and say, I don't need anything from you. I'm going to come out. I'm gay. So I, I, I'm independent from whatever you think about me. And then coming out of the spiritual closet was a really difficult thing because all the people that were in my life were people in the in the fashion industry, and um, they thought I, I lost my shit. They thought I went bad shit crazy because I was now in monasteries in India, you know, doing my thing and, and talking about healing and talking about transformation and and running after teachers. And people are just like, "What the fuck happened to you?" And then slowly, slowly, they were like, "I want some of that too. I want that relaxation. I want that joy. I because all the photos I used to take were like this." And now every photo I take is like, it's all about letting the inner smile radiate in the face, you know, over and over again. 
Um, but it, it took a minute. And I think coming out of the spiritual closet, it's, it's a radical choice in the world that says no, in the world that says stay small, be small, um, and fit in. Coming out of the spiritual closet, it's you. It's, it's making a radical choice to be authentically you and to make the radical choice to activate your heart and find the ways to share the qualities of the heart in your own unique way with the world. And that takes a lot of courage, right? Because a lot of people are doing jobs they don't like, hanging out with people they don't like, not healing relationships and blaming other people for how they feel. Coming out of the spiritual closet asks you to take inventory of every area of your life and say, what, how could I spiritually align every single aspect of my life and be, and be honest about it? Um, that's a little, a little something in there. Does that make sense? It does. You know, at the very beginning of Spiritual Sassy, right at the very, very beginning of the book, <laughs> you introduce Saz Sassy Glossary. Yeah. And I had so much fun uh, <laughs> reading about this. And one of them is the way you use, I mean, you've been using the word honey in this conversation. Yeah. That's sweet. But then it kind of goes up, it, go, it starts going up various levels. <laughs> and you talk about how you can call someone girl. And why don't you explain the, the terms that got my attention were girl, bitch, and mega boss. Great. So go ahead and, and define these three terms okay. the sassy way. Yeah. So girl, um, I think uh, you know, if I'm correct from what I wrote, uh, you know, this is a year and a half ago. But the way I use it, it's a, it's 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 not gendered. It's a loving, kind way of saying darling or sweetie, but it has that edge, like girl, like. It almost like you have to, you know, you have to give a little bit of a, a break in the back and a snap to like call somebody in like, girl, like check your shit. Um, and then bitch, it's, it's like another degree. It has all of these words have, you know, sort of like a, two ways. It's, it could be like, bitch, what's up? Or like, bitch, you know, it's, it's either like wake your shit up or like celebrate you. It's never negative. It's they're both like wake up to your shit. And not in a negative way, but like, hey, aware, high, bring awareness to this, or also like, let's celebrate you, bitch, that kind of thing. And a mega boss, it's someone who's living in their truth, someone who has figured out what brings them joy, someone who knows how to serve the world, someone who knows who they are at the base of their being. And um, and it's something that I that I say often to people: awaken your mega boss. And when you awaken your mega boss, you have spiritualized every area of your life. Um, that's that's what I'm remembering from. I should probably pull up the glossary because I say that so often now that I it's I think the words sort of they are they're getting new meaning the more I use it too. Let me see. All right. Well, well, I want to celebrate you, bitch. Okay. And I want to I want to I want to celebrate you, bitch, by talking about oh, the dark. social media videos okay. that you have oh. of yourself that last about 30 seconds, yeah. 20, 30 seconds, yeah. and you are dancing in some gorgeous outfits. And you're communicating spiritual truths at the same time. Now, to me, talk about a 21st century way of sharing the Dharma, yeah. uh, something like this. So share with me a little bit about the inspiration mm -hmm. behind these dance videos. Thank you for that, my love. That is, that is a, such a, a good one because I had a lot of fear, you know, being in a guest house in Dharamsala 
and putting on a kimono and some sexy underwear and like knowing that that was my way in to get people to like read about suicide, read about mental health, read about the mind, get to know themselves. I knew that that was my way in to allure people in to like become aware of this stuff. But it took again, it's, it was another coming out of the spiritual clause. It was another way of me being more truthful, more authentic, more radically myself. I was like, who, who am I to, to say that I'm, I'm sharing, uh, you know, the Buddha Dharma in this way? That is so not the way. This is the, the, you're doing a disservice to the lineage. You're, you're, you're fucking shit up. But I said, no, there's the whisper in my heart. The knowing that arises from the most awakened part of me guides me towards, yes, this is the way to do it. This is the way that you are meant to share that. Um, so it took a lot of courage to, to step in and say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. And then slowly, slowly, that's, you know, that created a whole movement in itself. And, and it's been incredible to see uh, guiding people to dance with attention and intention, not just dancing for the sake of dance, but, you know, gathering the energy of the mind into the present moment and then treating that, that you know, spacious awareness that we create with concentration with an intention and saying, I'll dance for my freedom. I'll dance my sorrows. I'll pour my anger to this dance. I'm dancing to transform. I'm dancing to heal. And, and, and that just sort of like took off. And I, it was interesting, the, you know, this Sa method where it's uh, meditation, it's ecstatic dance, meditation, breath work, and mantra combined. It was something that I was just doing it for myself and posting it as a way to like draw people into the, to this, to this practice, to this, to this, you know, uh, piece to, you know, peek into my world of how I was, I was healing. And then uh, Deepak Chopra's team, I was like, girl, what, what are you doing over there? That's a look. Come into our office. So I go to their office, six people sitting around. They have already read everything that was on me. They have already seen everything I had to say. They were just sort of interviewing me. Uh, and they're like, we want you to teach this at our retreat. And, you know, like yourself, it's, it's like, you know, such an honor to, uh, and so intimidating to be in your presence. Same with Deepak and all these masters who have, who have you know, ended up having uh, the honor to be next to and then to go to Deepak Chopra's retreat and share this thing that had no language for it, that was just me bringing attention and intention to dance and transforming. And, and then I had to create a method for it. I had to create a, a, a terminology for it and structure to it. And, and then that sort of took off. Um, but it, it's, it really comes down to doing, you know, creating the, 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 the conditions, uh, the, 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 you know, for you to Tap into the flow state where you're then able to think uh, laterally beyond logic. And that's when you this, these whispers come through and you do things that you surprise yourself. And you're like, damn, girl, that's, that's a look. And then you get feedback from the world saying, this is the right way. Go forward. Um, so that communion with life was happening the more I was posting these videos. And I can't wait to mm -hmm. dance with you, honey. All right. All right. Now, in the very beginning of our conversation, you paid homage to the Mahasiddhas, yeah. that in a sense, who you are today is living on their shoulders in a certain sense. And I don't know if all of our listeners will be familiar with the Mahasiddhas. Uh, you know, I think of them, talk about yeah, mega bosses. Right. They're the mega bosses, but yeah. maybe you can share a little about how you've been inspired by them. That's right. And, I have them. I have uh, them right here. Yeah. They're the Buddha's lions, uh, also known. And the 
the the literature speaks of 84, you know, Mahasiddhas. And these are great saints, and these are people who are uh, radical. They didn't follow the 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 you know the traditional setting of perhaps going to a monastery and sitting quietly. They views all their pain, all their suffering, their craft, their their views everything to become free, um, and that freedom to support other people. And uh, this this you know the the I, I just love that because of because I what I'm really you know what I'm really ex, uh, you know what excites me it's the the, the notion of like out of the monastery, out of the cave, into the streets and using your relationship to people, into yourself, um, into your environment to, to become free. So um, I recommend to just, you know, as just as, as a beautiful uh, poetry and, and, and beautiful experience to read about the Buddha's lions or these radical saints that have paved the way for a different kind of spirituality, for a spirituality that's radical, that, that uses everything in, in anything to become free. And one thing that I also loved when I was just getting started on this path was that this, uh, this Vajrayana, this tantric Buddhism and these Mahasiddha ways was for people who have access to extreme emotions um, into, uh, and who are visionaries and creative types. So through the book, it, it you know, talks about uh, sex workers and, and, and different kinds of, of these radical saints who are transforming our reclaiming our view on what spirituality is and i think that is so phenomenal for someone who was trying to fit in for someone who was so desperate trying to fit into these like spiritual places um, that's a modern way of talking about it i encourage everybody just to um just look up on google and get the maybe sounds true has a modern take on the has a, a modern one a modern book on it I, I don't think we do, okay. but uh, you, you may have to be the one to write it. Oh my it, so. God, it would be, and imagine how amazing would it be to uh, create incredible visuals to, to, to show them. And I do have a, a course that I created where it's there's 10 modern day Mahasiddhas um, that we were, were drawing upon the radical visionary energy, people who have truly been in a traumatic uh, previous experience and then they really said you know what f this i'm going to create for my pain i'm going to transform my pain into my dharma um and you know it's can you give an example of that just to make it real for people yeah same for exactly for me now i help people with you know my my becoming a mental health advocate and studying you know the buddha dharma and contemplative psychotherapy like all the things that i've struggled with depression suicidal ideation anxiety addiction that is the foundation of where my work you know lives and in, in the next stage to something that I'm really excited about is helping people, young boys, um, uh, queer brown, you know, folks um, specifically um, get to know themselves from the age of 16 to like 19. They're, they're, those, those are the most traumatic times in my life. Those are the times that I literally, oh my God, have done the most ruth, ruthless things towards myself, towards other people. Um, without guidance, without support. So the next level of my work is now that I, you know, I'm establishing myself in in this in this place, helping people with depression, anxiety, and, and addiction to then go into that place and help young people in that age. So I say oftentimes, not for everybody, but depending what you have overcome, depending what's been your most traumatic experience, and you found your way out of the valley of shadows onto the other shore. Um, whatever tools you've accumulated through that journey, that might be what you're asked to do in this lifetime. 
that might be where your purpose lives. That might be where your most source of joy lives. And that's where you are most of service. So that is transforming your pain into your mission. That is you living like a mega boss, honey. <laughs> yeah. As you know, I've experimented with a lot of different approaches to spiritual growth. But one approach I somehow found a way to successfully avoid was anything that had to do with extreme cold immersion. That is, until I met Wim Hof, also known as the Iceman, someone I've interviewed on Insights at the Edge, and learned how controlled, no shock, cold showers are part of a practice that can help us release stress, support immune response, and deepen our awareness of the spiritual dimension of our being. Wim Hof is a bold revolutionary who believes that cold is an intelligent and righteous force. You can learn more about Wim Hof and his method at findyourcold.com. Now, in your book, Spiritually Sassy, you identify eight steps for the spiritually sassy way. Yeah. And there's a couple of steps I want to talk to you a little bit yeah. about. We can't go over all of yeah. them. But in step six, you talk about believe you're amazing. Mm -hmm. And my question for you is, how do you work with it when you don't feel amazing? What do you do? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, I think first things first is our, this baseline of feeling like inadequate and wrong and walking around like a mortal sin or walking around with this idea that, you know, uh, it, it goes back to the forgiveness, right? It literally goes back to that because I think a lot of us interpret my actions are bad. I'm a bad person. This misinterpretation puts you in this, in this, in this state of complacency of, of, of inability to, to recognize that I, if my actions were bad, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. My actions are not a reflection on on the self, on on my source energy or my Buddha nature. So it will. This is why the steps in the book are um, they are linear. They are meant to be worked on one after the next. Because when you do land and believe you're amazing, at that point you're gonna have already started to look at the main pain points in your mind that that take you for a spin. You're gonna have already looked at your belief systems. You're going to have introduced a new set of belief systems into the mix. You're going to have already started to train your mind. Concentration of mind, I can't say enough at all. I think a lot of people are so drawn to conceptual meditations and visualizations and visualize yourself amazing. Great. All the stuff, it's perfect and delicious. But in the literature itself, it's, you have to concentrate the mind. So concentration of mind is foundation. Relearning how to breathe. I say this so often. And then have a practice that makes you feel sexy. I think sensuality and sexuality have been so looked down upon in, in the hive, in the, in the in spiritual play, uh, uh, teachings of sort. But I think, you know, something that I've developed later is like uh, that I've been talking about is putting on your spiritual stilettos. And I'm talking about mm. tip, tip toes or putting on your high heels, even if you don't wear them. And I think whoever created the spiritual, the, the stilettos or the high heels was a, was a spiritual master, unaware of what they were doing. Because when you put on the heel, you're rolling your shoulders back, your spine is straight, your chin is parallel to the ground, 
you have a different view of yourself in the world. And it asks you to walk with presence, regardless if you're on autopilot, regardless if a lot of people now are using the high heels to hide their pain, to hide their, 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 you know, their crunchiness. But I think the truth of it, it's rolling your shoulders back and putting the spiritual stiletto. That in itself is a simple practice that will help people to walk up and down your house, put on a delicious song and just walk, you know, putting your tiptoes. Tip is that how you say in English? Tiptoes, right? Like, like that. And just walk up and down, you know? And, and then as you're walking up and down, visualize the whole world sending you love. Visualize the whole world happy that you're alive. Visualize the whole world bowing because you're walking in your power. Like have that inner play, have that communion with life. But really everyone, boys, girls, and, 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 and non-binary, fluid people of all sorts, and try this experience of like walking your tippy toes. I call the spiritual stiletto practice. And something that's just landed for me in the last couple of months as I've been teaching, um, as I've been, you know, uh, continue to upgrade my, my teaching. And it does wonders for people. It literally puts you in that place of like, oh shit, I'm a visionary. I'm a mega boss, bitch. So try that out. And, and again, it's, it, it's a daily reminder. And it starts with what you see in the mirror in the morning. Are you like how I used to be? I, I'm, I'm still struggling with acne scars. And I, but my skin was terrible, like cystic acne in my chest, in my back, in my face. And I used to look at myself in the mirror and be like, you're gross. That was how, first thing I would say to myself in the morning, imagine the impact that I had, oh, believing that, entering the world from that place. So who are you? What are you saying to yourself as soon as you wake up? To believe you're amazed, you have to change your internal vocabulary. Treat the mind to, to you know, say the things that you say to your best friend, tell them to yourself. Say the things that you say to your lover, but tell them to yourself. Over and over again. No wonder why I have a, a freaking Buddha tattoo in my hand and a compassion date in the other one. And I'm about to like, you know, continue to, these are reminders. We need reminders. Put sticky notes on your bathroom wall, whatever it takes you to do. You know, I have, I have a Manjushri in my background on my phone because I want to be reminded of my unconditional potential to be wise at any given moment. Every single thing around me is a reminder of my potential. Remind, to be amazing, to, to, rem, to remember that you are, that you have this unconditional potential to be amazing and, and visionary and you, you, to recognize you have a purpose here over and over again, you need reminders. These are your sangha, these are your teachers, this is your practice, and this is your house. Turn your room into a shrine, honey. Stuff like that. Sa de Simone, you've inspired me for the first time in my life at age 58 to go buy a pair of stilettos. Yeah. <laughs> Please show me what happens. All right. Okay. It. Now, I read that you have actually have a name for your inner critic, oh, yeah. that you call your inner critic Bianca okay. with a K. That's right. Why name your inner yeah. critic and why Bianca? That's right. Uh, that's so funny because it was another radical moment. I'm, I'm sitting at ABC carpet, uh, ABC home, Deepak's home base in New York around very serious meditation teachers. And everyone's like, this is what I do with my mind. This is what happens. And everyone's like that. And I said, <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you a story about Bianca with the K. Everyone starts laughing. And I was like, okay, the work is working because joy, if we're laughing, healing is taking place. So the, the healing has already started. And don't take me wrong, like whatever path towards freedom that works for you, do you, you know, um, but I, I think the importance of laughter. So when I hear Bianca with a K, it already sparks a little bit of joy. And when you give your inner critic a name, what you're doing is you're, you're recognizing spacious awareness. You're recognizing that you are the sky 
as vast as the sky and as bright as the sun, you're not just a passing cloud. Over and over again, we're, we're um, unintentionally, because of our condition, we're overly identifying with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our emotions. A, a thought passes by, we put on that old prom dress that doesn't even fit you anymore, and we enter the world, all squeezed up and tight, and we're operating from that place. So we're saying unkind things, we're acting, uh, we're doing unwholesome actions. So when we are naming the inner critic, you're able to recognize that this is a part of you that's crunchy. It's not who you are. Stop putting yourself on the box by believing your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions to be the truth indicator of who you are. Uh, you're unboxable, honey. And no, nothing can put you in a box. And when you are, you know, there's a variety of ways to also approach this. But the baseline of it is, is parts vocabulary saying a part of me feels this, a part of me is experiencing that, a part of me is, is this, helps you to create spacious awareness. And the inner critic, it, it, it goes back to being spiritually sassy. It calls upon joy, it calls upon laughter, it calls upon playfulness, which I think it's, it really is the, the, you can gauge the depth of your spiritual progress by how lighthearted you are and how much you can laugh at yourself. Um, so calling, and I invite everybody who's listening to give your inner critic a name. And when you start to go into catastrophizing um, or ruminating or worst case scenario mindset, any variation of states of mind that are unwholesome, they're destructive, they're unkind, they're vicious, give it a name by giving it a name. Uh, and this is also, it, it falls back into like a Buddhist teaching of like labeling the internal weather pleasant and pleasant and neutral without attachment or aversion, right? So the footing is in the Buddhist uh, psychology, but I just try to find a way to like uh, modernize it for people. And it's good. Like even when I'm caught up in my shit, my sister's like, Bianca's here. Tell her to take a, tell her to take a virgin margarita and go back to the beach. You know? <laughs> or I say to myself, oh, Bianca's around. Let me put the coffee to go. She's not coming in for tea. To, she's not coming in for coffee. I'm not bringing out the beautiful, the beautiful ceramic mug and having her in. And I'm not letting her move in either. You know, so it gives you that playfulness to, 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 to change the mind. And slowly, slowly, when we stop overly identifying with every single internal distraction that arises in the mind, the mind naturally calms itself because you're stopping the momentum. You know, feelings come, thoughts, you know, claim the feelings, and then we react. If you're able to, to pause in that middle and, and, you know, when you call it Bianca, you're stepping into the audience and say, oh, look who's performing right now. Bianca, hey girl, that's a fierce performance, Oscar-winning performance, honey. But I'm not buying it for this show anymore. <laughs> I'm stepping off. You know, it's that kind of energy. And it, the laugh, laughing towards myself, was something that I learned at uh, at an ashram in the south of India, Amma's ashram. There was a guy who was laughing at himself all the time, and I was so triggered by it. But then I built the courage to ask him, "Why do you laugh out loud towards yourself multiple times a day?" And he says, "Every time I get caught up." In a negative spiral, I laugh at myself to recognize how empty and how transient these thoughts and these feelings are. And I laugh at myself when I get caught up in them. And that laughter helps me to unhook, helps me to recognize that I'm taken. And I was like, oh, what a guru. You're a genius. You know, what a legendary, beautiful teaching. But the aversion that came from, from you know, my inability to, to, to see that that was like a high teaching right there. So that's a little bit about Bianca. She's not around so often. She comes in. It's like sometimes it's late afternoon when I have done everything I need to do for the day. And she's like, you haven't done enough, honey. Where are you at? You're not producing enough. Everybody else is doing so much. You're not. 
comp- competition in comparison shows up, that's Bianca, you know. Or in the morning, wake up feeling crunchy, like, oh, you're going to be crunchy all day. You suck. That is Bianca. So I'm like, oh, hey, girl, what you need, boo? What you need? You know? <laughs> and then slowly she phases. She passes, you know? Okay, so I wanted to ask you a question about this sentence that I pulled from the book that I thought to myself, I really want to know how to do this. <laughs> and uh, what you wrote is on the spiritually sassy path, you will learn to connect with the heart on demand, on demand. And you know, I've been in situations where I don't feel like I can access my heart, feel shut off Mm -hmm. or whatever. So how do you connect with the heart on demand? Great question and big, delicious question. I just also want to preface preface quickly that like at that point of working, having worked through your shit through the book, at that point, you're going to have a variety of different tools. I have to say this over and over again. It requires you to have a a deep relationship to the breath. Uh, You know, research shows that an ordinary uh, us, all of us, experience anxiety and depression, we're breathing anywhere from 12 to 16 times per minute. And, and the healing breath that gives us access to a different perspective to give us, give us access to an, you know, a rolled up shoulder, a chin that's parallel to the ground, a fierce look, a relaxed face um, is a breath that's four to six times per minute. So relearning how to breathe, it's, I mean, it's the, the, the secret sauce, I think, for connected to the heart on demand. And, and, Slowly, slowly being able to identify what that whisper, you know, feels like, the the quality of that whisper. And and then, you know, slowly, slowly you're going to it, it will feel like more like the um the the default of the mind. But it, you know, it's a practice and it's something that like it's a continuous effort. It's not something that I that you know I think we we could all agree we could be years into the practice and we still get caught up. Bianca still takes over, and we are meeting with a with a friend, and we are in a social gathering. You're stepping into stage to teach, and then all of a sudden you're caught up in imposter syndrome. You're caught up in judgment and comparison and whatever it is. Um, but the I think the foundation of 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 the work require us to to uh, take a deep belly breath, a long exhale, you know, reclaim ownership of, over your nervous system, reclaim agency over your internal world. And notice if our perception is limited of ourselves um, or, or the world. Um, and also, you know, carry a mantra with you. I, I work with the Tara mantra over and over and over again when I'm being limited in compassion towards myself or limited in compassion towards other people or the Manjushri mantra. Wisdom and compassion are my go-to. Om tare tare ture soha, and in the last chapter of the book is where I offer the a lot of the a lot of the the, the tantric Buddhist mantras. Um, and check it out. Some of these mantras might be transformative for you. I know the between these two, the Manjushri wisdom and, and the Tara compassion mantra um, have l- literally given me access. Um, to heart on demand, and I knew that I had access to the heart on demand more fully, more regularly, um, when I would be caught up in this internal season, uh, and I'll be hooked and taken by it. And then the natural next thing that would happen, the munch would show up in my mind. And I was like, oh shit, this is working. I didn't have to fetch into my spiritual fanny pack so often to pull out the munch. I didn't have to take a deep breath because my, 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 my nervous system already knew a different way of relating to stress. My mind already knew a different way of relating to, to, to destructive thoughts, feelings, and emotions with the munch or with the breath. 
Um, that is, that is, uh, does that make sense? It does. And, you know, it's interesting that you're pointing to this final chapter of the book, right. more meditations, prayers, and mantras for your journey, where you offer uh, these yeah. mantras, as you just described. Yeah. But the very first practice yeah. that you offer yeah. in this chapter is the practice of taking a primal scream. I and I also, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why yeah. I saw just, you know, here we are being super sassy yeah. together. That's something that I've found I've had to do. I've had to do it. I've never talked about it before, and I don't know how I'll feel, you know, in, in an hour. Yeah. But sometimes I've just had to take a primal That's scream. Right. It's just like something in That's me. Right. But I've never heard anybody really talk about it in a contemporary way. So tell me how you came to this. Oh, honey. <laughs> well, I had to reclaim the primal scream. I grew up in a household, again, very loving parents, but screaming was a default. Mom and dad communicated with screaming and there wasn't kind, it wasn't the healing kind. It was the one that triggered you and made you want to run away. Um, but slowly, slowly, as I started to like, you know, rebuild myself and reclaim my relationship to, to a lot of things uh, and, and, and translate, you know, screaming in a, in a healing way, um, I started to just do research around, um, you know, the power of singing and then the power of screaming. And then there is research that um, that really shows that it's it's an extremely healing practice. And at all of our retreats, we do it after we do the forgiveness day, the, the last bit of the forgiveness day, we go into the forest and we've done this Palo, we've done this at different places where people are doing that kind of you know work like this. And then here we are being <laughs> loud as fuck, you know, you know, letting the gods and goddesses know that we're healing, like letting them know that we're not we're not finished, that we're going to the next level. Please pay attention to me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the screaming has been tremendously powerful um, for, for myself and, and for a lot of people. And what I do, if you live in a city or in an apartment and you, you can't do it, go to your car, you know, go to your car, close the door, drive up to a parking lot and just let it out. Take a deep belly breath, really long inhale, and then just let out the scream that the all and, and set the intention. I'm going to scream my sores. I'm going to scream my regrets. I'm going to, I'm going to like set an intention for it. And that is what pr the primal scream is like set an intention for it and say, I have something that I, I'm not aware of what's happening. There's crunchy energy, wobbly energy within me right now. And I need it out. I want it out. So uh, test that out. Or, you know, I've had students who are screaming into the pillow, but I, I, I think you really do need to like be sort of, you know, you, you, you guys are in Boulder, you have the forest you can go to, you know, you could do it there. Uh, but if you are in a New York city or a place like that, you know, see what you can do, but experience, try that. And I always say to people, if screaming was something that was triggering for you, if hearing a scream was something that was, you know, made you <gasps> tense, um, you know, work, work up to it, but, but experience that. It also helps you to reclaim your voice. I think a lot of us, you know, women, queer, black, brown folks, we've been told to stay quiet, mute yourself. So screaming it out, saying, I am done muting myself. I'm done silencing myself. Use that intention for your scream. That's another powerful way to really reclaim ownership of your life, you know? Um, and I recommend everybody to try it. <laughs> You are a screaming mega oh, boss. Thank you, okay, now I I know I'm off, you know bringing up some of these steps yeah. all out of That's order okay. and just referring to them here yeah. and there, but I'm just trying to underscore uh, some of the things that I was the most curious yeah. about. And in your eight part sassy way, yeah. step five is name your superpower. And of course, the subtitle of the book 
is also these eight radical steps to activate your innate superpower. Right. So what's all this superpower talk? Superpower is your unique way of expressing the Brahma Viharas. Again, Buddhist jargon, but the Brahma Viharas are the four innate quality to our hearts, according to the historical Buddha. Uh, the literature speaks to them a little bit different. Um, I translate it in a way that I find most relatable. So equanimity is now known as wisdom. Sympathetic joy is just known as joy. Uh, loving kindness is just known as love. And, and, and Mahakaruna is just known as, as compassion. Um, so it's we all have these four qualities in our hearts. Superpower is you find your own unique way of communicating these four qualities into the world. My unique way of communicating my superpowers into the world is, is showing up in a full, expressed, sassy way. So it's communicating wisdom in a sassy way. It's communicating compassion in a sassy way, love and joy in a sassy way. We all have our own unique way of conveying love, compassion, wisdom, and joy back into the world. And that's our mission, is to find our own unique way of conveying that back into the world. And it might show up for you as you're making jewelry, as you're, as you're writing, as you're speaking, as you're dressing somebody, as you're painting, whatever it may be, your gift for me is, is, is sassy language, is communication in a sassy way. So your superpower in this piece right here is finding your own unique way of conveying love, compassion, wisdom, joy back into the world. Um, and it will take you to, to, again, go through these steps because there's a lot of amazing, this is a practice book, you know, it's, it's, you read the theory and then you read the, 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 the wisdom part. And then it, it, I really put you to, to do the work. And as you do the work, you're going to figure out where does joy live for me? Like, what do I make me, uh, wh what makes me feel most, uh, make me come alive? So there's a lot of different uh, bits and pieces of practice that will help you to find your own unique way. I think a lot of people that are on the spiritual path, they think that their superpower, uh, they're going to, you know, they're conveying their superpower is by, you know, being, doing something like Tammy, starting a, a, a spiritual a publishing house or doing something like SAS, stepping to this role of, of teaching or, or fundraising for an NGO or be, whatever. It's not that. It's find your own unique way. If you're doing something that, it's, that helps you to stay connected to that most awakened part of you, to your Buddha nature, whatever you touch with that intention will permeate the grid system and will help other people. If, even if you're you know, if your if your superpower is working with Excel sheets, which they make me, they overwhelm me, and I I I went into a trance when I look at them. But like my accountants, you know, I'm not, they do it from a place of intention, from and from that place of wisdom within them. And when when you look at them, you know, when you look at them, it, it relaxes your system because someone's doing it from a place of intention. People who make jewelry from that place of wisdom, compassion, love, and joy. When you look at that beautiful jewelry, when someone paints someone's hair or creates clothes, whatever it is, whatever unique way you have that is only you know how to do to help you access and create and uniquely um, convey that back into, that's your superpower. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm imagining that person Saga says, yeah, look, Saga's so flamboyant, you know, so funny, so clever, you know, he's dancing like a mega bitch, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, like, it's easy for him to say, claim your superpower, even if it's just Excel spreadsheets mm -hmm. or making a beautiful dinner. It doesn't really feel like a superpower. Mm -hmm. That part of the listener who goes into their comparing mm -hmm. mind and says, you know, my superpower feels like a mini power. Mm -hmm. Bullshit. I call or, it bullshit. 
I call that, I call that you, it's you listening to Bianca. I call that you have to make, make friends with Bianca. So in order for you to listen to the whisper of your heart more fully, listen to the part of you that celebrates you, listen to the part of you that loves in, and, 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 and it's really devoted to your healing and know that it's, the comparison and competition, people thinking that like, I need to help millions of people and I'm, I'm not helping any, if I'm, if I'm not helping millions of people, I'm not helping at all. That's, that's such a conditioned, capitalistic way of approaching your life and, and healing in general. Recognize the quality over quantity, honey. And if you are helping five people, if you're helping 10 people, or if you're, if you're exercising your superpower when you're making that beautiful dinner at your small uh, bed and breakfast uh, uh, place upstate New York or in Boulder, Colorado, you are helping the grid system. You're helping the collective uh, to awaken. I think the, the conditioning that of comparison, oh, Sa's doing it that way. You're doing this way. Honey, listen to this right now. You've been my mother. I've been your mother. We've sw- we're just switched roles right now. You know what I mean? I'm just here to remind you what you already know. And that's important to know. I went up to this to see this oracle in, in, in Dharamsala, and I was hoping he would give me this super complicated tantric practice. That Sa, honey, the only thing you need to do is think, uh, engage with everybody as if, as if they have been your mother. And I was like, oh, fuck you. I want some really complicated tantric practice. And this is what you're giving me. It took me a couple of days to even like entertain the idea of working with that. So when you're comparing and competing with other people, it's the delusion mind speaking because someone who you're inspired by, they're just reminding you of what you could do. They're reminding you of your potential. The seed of inspiration is in you. What you see in me is in you. It's the, there's nothing that I don't that I have that you don't have. This the separateness that we are approaching life with. It's it's delusion mind. It's it's the it's the stuff that we're here to clean up. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's in short a little bit about that. I wish I can shake somebody up and be like, "Honey, no, 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 this is not the real thing." You know, you have it. You can do it. I just want to end with one final yeah. question, Saw, which is this podcast is called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm always curious about is what somebody's growth edge is, what they're working on. If they were to tell the truth, like this is really, you know, this is the part of me that's not so evolved that I'm working on so it can become more evolved. And part of the reason I like to ask this question often is because I think we uh, tend to pedestalize Mm -hmm. people. And just by all of us coming off the pedestal and talking about what we're working on, I think gets people to just know that we're all on a journey. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious in your journey, what's your edge? It still comes back to to inadequacy. still comes back to like a a surfacing feeling of feeling inadequate, feeling like I'm wrong or I'm undeserving, I'm unlovable. And why that's showing up is because I am finally at a place in my life that I want partnership. I want a companion. You know, I want to share my life with somebody and I've had a few heartbreaks, even in the time of COVID, you know, and of the pandemic, it's, and and that rejection has really flared up this, this, like, I'm unlovable. I'm, 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 you know, that really has been uh, something that's come up for me. And I spent um, two weeks at the beginning of the pandemic walking around just recognizing my pain. I'm in pain. I'm in pain because I had met this guy at a retreat 
And I felt, and first of all, I broke the silence in retreat, which I, you know, never do, but he, he said hi to me. So I ended up saying hi back, whatever, make a long story short. Um, he, we ended up talking. I thought, oh my God, my dream has always been to meet somebody at a retreat center because that means that they're interested in the same things I'm interested in, blah, blah, blah. It was not the case. Um, I had, I had put him on a pedestal. I had done a great job that we do. Um, but I had, you know, uh, really glorified a, a lot of that experience. And then when I received, when I encountered the rejection, it really put me on the spin of, of feeling inadequate again, feeling unlovable, feeling wrong, feeling like I'm, a, I'm just a, in, a, a bad person at the base of my being. And that was something that I had sort of faced many, many years ago. And it came back again. And the more I put myself out there in relationship, and I hope whoever is listening, if you're single, honey, hi, um, say hi, don't, don't be shy. I'm not intimidating at all. I'll probably squeeze you and give you a, a big hug. Um, it's, it really has been a huge thing for me and wanting to find companionship and, and experiencing this inadequacy as it shows up. Um, that's been a big thing for me. And also resurfacing feelings of, of, of addiction, you know, like contemplating oh, people are having so much more fun than me because they're drunk or they're high. And I'm like, do I want to have that again? Do I want to go in that place? So these are some of the things that have surfaced for me. Uh, and thank you for bringing up this question because it's very, it's very, it's very necessary for us to, um, I never want to be put on a pedestal ever. So I think that's a necessary piece to sort of anchor in um, relationship and, and um, you know, crunchiness and stickiness around drugs and alcohol. Um, now that I'm three years in uh, May, June, July, August. Uh, three years and three months sober. You know, I want to thank you, uh, Saw, for being so honest and vulnerable and being so trustworthy. You know, what I notice is that when people share what's really happening, I trust them. And also, I just want to say, it, I, love I love you. you. Spontaneously and really, thank you for being so wickedly sassy and funny and uh, reverently irreverent and carrying the torch in our world for a new generation. Thank you so much. Oh my much. God, honey. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for supporting, supporting this, the work and, and, so, and really, you know, giving me this opportunity to be here with you and sounds true family, like dreams coming true. And thank you for that. Truly love you. And I can't wait to dance with you and us both in our stilettos, you know, the hair out and the whole vision. Thank you so much. Mm. Yeah, really been speaking with Sa De Simone. He's the author of the new book, Spiritually Sassy, Eight Radical Steps to Activate Your Innate Superpowers. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.